From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Sivan Rahav Meir, media personality and lecturer at World Mizrahi Shlicha to North America. Sivan discusses how she balances her many roles, reveals her favorite interview, and shares her thoughts and impressions of the American Jewish community from her time on Shlichut. Plus, the rabbis discuss what they would do if they won the lottery. Also, reflections on the Lubavitcher Rebbe and marking the 70th anniversary of his assuming leadership. And a special message from Jewish music superstar Ishai Rebo. All this and more, Behind the Bima. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m., and we are here to take you... Behind the Bima. Behind the Bima. I am joined by my panelist, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz, Rabbi Josh Brody. It's another Wednesday night. In some ways, it's a historic Wednesday. It's Inauguration Day. Very proud day for America and a, a transition of power, which is uh, really reflective of democracy. And whatever your politics, we are an apolitical show. We simply celebrate the fact that we have a new present, a new beginning. We're filled with hope and optimism and promise of a new future. And until someone loses that, they should have all Americans rooting for them. As has been said many times, to root against your own president is, is to root against the pilot of your own plane because the consequences are grave for each and every one of us. I want to thank our sponsor this evening, Tonight's episode is sponsored in honor of Stories to Inspire, an organization dedicated to spreading inspirational stories told by today's most popular rabbis and speakers. You can visit storiestoinspire.org, storiestoinspire.org, access over 2,000 stories. Wow. Click subscribe Are you on there? to join their podcast. Uh, I think uh, I have a story on there, yeah. Daily WhatsApp yeah. broadcast, email us, follow them on Instagram, stories, the number two, inspire. If you have more inspiration, very grateful. I hope everybody takes advantage. Who doesn't need more inspiration in their lives? They're still living in a dark time. You know, every rabbi in the country is going to tell a story from Stories to Inspire the Shabbos. <laughs> I hope they do. Stories to Inspire is a great resource, and they should go to it. Everybody check out the website. The problem is now that we sent everybody to the website, the rabbis can't go there because they're going to tell stories their congregants all know. But still, uh, check it out. So today's uh, it's a proud day, Inauguration Day. Stay of hope and optimism. I hope you're both feeling good. And again, apolitical, whatever you think about the previous president or our now current president, today's a day to be a proud American and root for democracy. And I think that in itself is worth celebrating. Do you both agree? I agree 100%. I wrote about it a few uh, months ago that uh, inarguably one of the greatest days in our nation's history was when George Washington gave up power and he gave it back to the people. And really that was unheard of in world history. Generally, the more power a person got, the more power they wanted. And right. here you had a system that was really ready to coronate him as the king. And Washington said, no, it's a power that was given to me by the people and I'm giving it back to the people. And that transition of power when Washington did that, I think really symbolizes the greatness of this country. And again, whatever your politics are, um, I think it says a lot about our country that there was a smooth transition of power and it's something we could all be very proud of. I hope exactly. so. I hope so. Thank God. We tonight have an extraordinary guest. We are so excited to welcome her shortly. A good friend of our community we spent Shabbos in our community. And you got to be a good friend to wake up at 3.30 in the morning. It just tells you the power of this podcast and how far it reaches. Someone's willing to wake up that ungodly hour. I don't know what was more insane, asking her if she'd wake up that hour or the fact that she did. So she'll be joining us shortly. And we're super excited to uh, to have her. Meanwhile... The lottery, Powerball, Mega Millions, just keeps going up, up and up and up. Have either of you purchased a ticket? Well, I'm I'm not purchasing it one yet because tonight is still the uh, the Powerball. Uh, Powerball. So if if I win like the 800 million in the Powerball, I I don't think I need to go and buy another one for the <laughs> yeah? 970 you it, million. You think you can Friday. get by on the you get by on the 800 million? Yeah, I have a whole plan already. 
like ninety nine percent of it is going away. I'm giving it away. Even though it's so irrational, right? You guys, it's so irrational to buy a lottery ticket, and yet I, watching you guys, you're like two kids in a candy store. Explain to us you, I just, the I logic behind such I'll irration. I'll, can I tell you what it is? Irrational thing to do. Yeah, the two dollars or three dollars. Like I buy the three dollar ticket now just because that extra dollar. You know, you could. I think you multiply your. So it will be like four billion dollars I can win the now. Multiplier effect. <laughs> the multiplier effect. I'm telling you, the amount of excitement I get for the next like two or three days, just thinking what would happen, is worth every one of those two dollars. So it's funny you say that. I have a very similar philosophy, which is. I'm not paying because I think I'm going to win. All you have to do is look at the odds and know that you're not going to win. There's a greater likelihood of being hit by lightning twice on the same day than there is of winning the lottery. Do you hear me? There's yeah, can I just tell you? Statist- My- greater statistical likelihood of being hit by lightning twice on the same day than there is of winning the lottery. So how could you squander and waste money to buy it? In fact, there are posts who have entertained that question. Is that halakhically, according to Jewish law, Jewish values, are you allowed to waste money, squander a dollar, two dollars, don't waste them the three, Brody, Rabbi Brody, um, and the answer is, you're not paying in order to win. What I pay for is the right to dream. dream. And it's a small price it. to pay to dream. Last Shabbos, I sat at the Shabbos table with my kids and asked them, what would you do differently if we won? What would change? What would change? Yeah, my wife and I had the same conversation. And and it is, it's fun. It's fun to dream. It's fun to to pretend and uh, and to figure out where you're going to spend $650 million that you're going to take home with you. Can I just tell you you're something? You're not pretending. You're not pretending. Hold on. Right? No, you are. I'll tell you why. Because every study shows that lottery winners are miserable and highly depressed within a year after winning the lottery. Not to be the Grinch. Um, okay. Many are, but you know what? I'll take that test. But listen, Rabbi Brody, first of all, you, you kept trying to say something. Then I waited. There was just a long dead pause and you said nothing. And now you're trying to say something again, but it's too late. So what I'll tell you is this. Wait, wait, wait. wait. No, no, I have something good to say. My, first of all, my mom will, will, will uh, verify this, but I have two, I think, great grandfathers. That guy get hit by lightning. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm pretty. It's like on the same day. On the same day. I think, the, I think they both were killed by lightning. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's actually quite so. sad. <laughs> That's, no, that's but I'm just saying that, that maybe that shows you that I, I, I have good odds. You never know. Lightning in a bottle. You've got good odds. Um, so why buy it? First of all, Postkim do say, according to Jewish law, Jewish values, you should not buy more than one ticket. You ever in the store and you have people, particularly those who can't even afford the one ticket, and they buy 10 or 20 or 50 tickets. Statistically, they think, well, if I buy 50 tickets, I'm 50 more times likely to win it. But you're not. The odds of winning it remain infinitesimally small. The odds of winning the lottery are 1 in 292,200,000. It's in tiny, tiny. When you buy 50 tickets, you haven't increased your odds. All you did is wasted money. So you have to buy one ticket because you got to be in it to win it. You can't win it if you don't have the one ticket. You can't dream. A dollar and a dream. So um, I agree with Sal Abadie, our listener, who says that he would not be miserable if he won. And I don't think I'd be miserable either. And I think the right to dream and to ask yourself, if you would quit your job the next day, if you won the lottery, then is what you're doing a job, a calling, right. or a profession? Is right. it a vocation or avocation? Do you love what you do? Or are you just doing it to pay the bills? So when you buy that ticket, you have the right to sit there and have those questions in that conversation. Would you move to Israel? Is your excuse for not living there? We'll talk to Sivan maybe about this, but your excuse for not living in Israel because you can't afford to? Well, what if you can afford to? 900 million, everyone knows the worst and oldest joke of all time. How do you make a small fortune in Israel? You start with a large one, but I think you can make it even in Israel with $900 million. And so would you pick up and move to Israel? Would you quit your job?
job, what would you do differently? $2 is a tiny price to pay for the right to have those conversations with yourself and your family. That's why I love it. Now, the real question is, and when the lottery is 20 million, it's not worth it? I was going <laughs> to ask, why do you only play when it's above, why do you only play when it's above $6 million? Your, your, your odds don't change. And no, if you want money to give dollars, you would be really happy in and of itself. No, sure. Money's not for it's us. There's more things we can fund. Exactly. Bigger right. difference that we can make. Exactly. Now we um, dream bigger. We we have so much to talk about tonight. We have an amazing show planned for you. Before we bring Sivan on, I want to bring on another special guest just for a moment. He's not just a Jewish music superstar. He's a Jewish superstar and a music superstar. Um, to to paraphrase one of my children. There's only one musician alive and maybe in history whose songs play both in a club in Tel Aviv and a Sfarim store in Meisharim. And that singer is the one, the only, the great Ishai Ribot. Ishai Ribot is a modern-day paitan. Ishai Ribot is an individual who's like a modern-day poet from the heart. And uh, he's here in South Florida. He's doing a bunch of concerts. The other night we had the opportunity to go here. He did for High Lifeline children and High Lifeline families of those who them all a speedy and full recovery put on a beautiful evening for those kids outdoors masks everyone was extremely careful particularly for those immunosuppressed children but he did a beautiful job every time he sings it's straight from the heart so i spoke to him about the opportunity coming on behind the bima which uh, he would have gladly done but it didn't work out to do for tonight some language barriers unless rabbi moskowitz or rabbi birdie speak french and i don't know but he did want to record a short video and send a message to our listeners so it's a pleasure to welcome ishai ribo with a message on behind the bima אני חושב שזה מתכון לגאולה מה שקורה איתכם, והלוואי והדבר הזה יופץ לכל רחבי העולם והארץ. אמן, אמן, תודה רבה. Wow. Now, lest, lest anyone be concerned, first of all, he had corona, he has antibodies. I wore a mask until the second. We just did that video from a distance, so we don't need anyone to How email or, right or to write in. If you watched it, there were English subtitles. If you're listening, his Hebrew, Shairi Bo, this a real superstar, um, sent a message about what he heard about BRS, Ashkenazim, Svarim, young, old, observant, less observant, and the fact that we all live under one roof, one community, one shul, and uh, he says that, well, please God, bring the geula, the redemption. So I told him, and this is true, I'm sure you both feel the same way. You know, there's an expression that things that go out from the heart enter the heart. His songs that come straight out of his heart, they enter into ours. And I told him, so when I have to write a drusha, if I have writer's block or I hit a wall, or even if I'm just looking for inspiration, first thing I do is press play on my Isha Rubo playlist. And that opens up my heart, my neshama, and enables me to think and to write. And he's really just a special neshama. So behind the beam, I was grateful he sent that message and shared it with all of our listeners. And uh, one day, he'll learn a little more English. We'll learn a little more French and Hebrew. And uh, we'll be able to coordinate to have him on the show as well. Also, I, Moscow, I, see, yeah. I, see, I see Matt Levin just tuned in there. One second, this is important. Matt, if I win this lottery, $100 million to the Federation. Whoa, you heard it here. Wow. Exclusive. That, that would be breaking news. Wow. That would but, be breaking but, news. Even like by that, the, doesn't isn't that worth the two dollars? <laughs> by the way, Matt, just for the record, Rabbi Brady offered a new water fountain to Booker Don Synagogue. So <laughs> very grateful. It is now an enormous pleasure for all of us to be able to welcome Sivan Rahav Meir, a good friend to us, a friend to our community, a friend to the whole Jewish people, an extraordinary person for so many reasons, not least of which is Getting up waking early. up so early in the morning. Sivan, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you. It was an outrageous chutzpah, as they say, for us to ask. <laughs> 
And it's chutzpah for you to wake up this morning. Thank you so much for joining us so early from your home. Good morning. Good morning from Yerushalayim. That's okay. We're Israelis. For us, chutzpah is great. So yeah, no problem. <laughs> Exactly. Somebody, um, when, when we posted we were having you on on social media, somebody wrote, I assume it's pre-recorded. I said, no, Sivan is up at three o'clock every day. There's no way she could get done what she gets done on an average day if she's not awake at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so our, our listeners all know, the whole Jewish world knows Sivan has been listed by the Jerusalem Post as one of the most uh, 50 influential Jews in the world. The uh, Mizrahi, world Mizrahi Shlichat to North America before rudely interrupted, um, writes a column Torah portion of the week for Yediot Achronot. And as has been put to me is, although this will date me a little bit, the Katie Kirk of Katie Israel, Kirk. as far as newscasters and journalists who is recognized in every home throughout Israel. And Sivan, we want to hear your story. Our listeners want to know again, how did that happen? How did you um, really break down a barrier? Today is a first time in America, vice president, a female, uh, vice president uh, Kamala Harris, which is uh, breaking down barriers and, and through ceilings. You as an observant Torah journalist, media personality, breaking down barriers, taking Israel and the greater world by storm. How did that happen? How did that come to be? Wow, okay. So first of all, Mazel Tov, or what do you bless when you have a new president? Uh, stability, Mazel Tov, Bezrat Hashem. Amen, uh, although amen. We loved the Israeli president. It wasn't an American president. It was like an Israeli president in the White right. House. But okay, no politics, <laughs> no politics. Anyway, Mazel Tov, Bezrat Hashem. May we be blessed now. God bless America. Amen. And, and yeah, and Israel too. Um, complicated days here and there. Anyway, um, yo, your question, basically, I should describe things that happened 30 years ago here in Israel when I was just six years old and I was very curious about reading and writing. I was a failure whenever it comes, until today, whenever it comes to anything else, uh, like sports, I don't know, um, playing the piano, playing the flute, all kind of cool activities, like a normal child in Israel. I was really, it was a disaster. And then I discovered at the age of six, I know how to read and write better than others. And I decided to invest, you know, the time and energy and efforts there, okay? And um, that was the beginning of my career, basically. As a young girl here in Israel, I, I, I interviewed everyone, basically. Shimon Perez of Blessed Memory, Trak Rabin of Blessed Memory, all uh, many politicians and Ishai Riba. Okay, I interview him now. He wasn't so famous. He was approximately my age then. I think he lived in France then. But... um. That was the beginning of, you know, of journalism. Uh, and I added Judaism afterwards when I was a teenager. Uh, it's quite strange, you know, because uh, back then they weren't like uh, pop stars like Ishari Bo who sang about Judaism and, and, and Torah. It was very strict. Either you're secular, chiloni, uh, very chiloni, or dati, from orthodox. And it was like... Um, discovering, you know, a secret. I never met someone who is observant until the age of 15. It sounds weird. I mean, I, I live in a Jewish state. No, I never wow. met someone who's Shomer Shabbat or Shomer Kashrut. It's possible. When you speak about the students, you know, campuses of, of Florida, sometimes you have those students in Israel too, unfortunately. So uh, these were the, I, th I think, the two, two revolutions, quite a young stage, an early age. But um, yeah, that's me today. Baruch Hashem. It it's amazing. And you're a role model to so many, not just women, to so many people about 
how you could embrace a Torah way of life, you could embrace an observant way of life, and it doesn't have to hold you back or stifle you. You've been able to break through, and as I said, you're a media superstar across Israel in every form of journalism, from the news and being a newscaster regularly, to print media, to teaching Torah in a way that the President of Israel has attended, to the WhatsApp groups. How many languages are your WhatsApp groups in? Wow, Baruch Hashem, 11 languages. Um, English, obviously, French, German, Spanish, Yiddish, Portuguese. Um, what else do we have? Amharic, you know, the Ethiopian language, Amharic. Uh, and uh, yeah, more, more than, yeah, 11 languages. Uh, Hungarian, yeah. It's amazing. I'm on the English one. I, I get the inspirational message every day. You can go to Sivan's website and sign up easily to join one of the WhatsApp groups. But it's really extraordinary what you've been able to accomplish. Have you ever felt that being observant has helped held you back? Have you confronted discrimination both in Israel from the Jewish people or even when you were broadcasting from abroad? Have you ever felt that anybody's held against you, the fact that you're a Torah observant? Um, I think maybe because, you know, I'm blessed to be by La Chuva, I became observant. Maybe I see it in a different way because sometimes when you come from a, a religious background and you enter, you know, Channel 12, that's the biggest ch- ch- news channel in Israel. So you feel like, oh, I have this, that burden, you know, I can't do this. I can't eat. I can't text on Shabbat. I can't uh, be in touch with, I, I'm different. Maybe because I was a journalist and then I became uh, like more from, I feel it added uh, really, I feel it like adds something to my career, to my life, because it's much more meaningful now. I interviewed them all, as I said, from, from the age of six. But now, like, there's a meaning and there's like shlichut, you know, there's a mission here. It's like a task that, in a way, yeah, you can say, okay, she doesn't, she's not on TV on, on Shabbat. It, it, it uh, you know, it, 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 it's, uh, it damages the, her career. She, she, we all develop three days a week and she's here just six days a week. No, obviously it helps you during those six days before Shabbat and after Shabbat. It blesses everything you do. So the way we believe that concept, I think each mitzvah we do helps us and promotes us. And I don't do, I don't like, you know, um, Sometimes people try to show, you know, if you read Haaretz, they will tell you, no, she's like from Iran. She's so extreme and she won't report this or that. I think the opposite. I want to report more things that you usually ignore because you just don't see it. You know, if I represent, okay, uh, maybe I, I exaggerate, but if I represent Judaism, it brings more to the table. It brings, I think, mm. more about, it's not just me. You know, there's, there are hundreds of thousands of years of inspiration here. Let's use it. And and that's my perspective. It's not always easy. There are always conflicts, obviously, especially we're Israelis. We have our four elections in, in two years, okay? We have uh, our conflicts here, yeah. Keeping you busy. Yeah. Yeah, my son just said, Mommy, I know we're the only democracy in the Middle East, but aren't we a little bit, like, exaggerating with that democracy concept, you know? <laughs> we keep uh, democratizing ourselves. I don't know. We've proven it. We've yeah. proven it. Yeah. It's amazing, and it's really an inspiration to others, to me personally, uh, the idea that nothing has to hold you back and you could stay true to your convictions and your dreams and still break through. It's a testament to your talent and to your personality and to the fact that, that people trust you. Um, Sivan, I know you've, you've interviewed an amazing array of really prominent people from Rav Avadia Yosef Zatzal, Lev Leviav. You were the first to break the story of Yigal Amir's marriage. By the way, I was in Karen Biyavna with Yigal Amir. I still remember him from Yeshiva, who was the wow. individual who murdered Yitzhak Rabin. Um, of, of all these prominent interviews that you've done, prime ministers, great rabbis, what's your favorite interview and why? Wow, wait a minute. Um, I think, first of all, the main scoop is just 
um, um, reporting what's going on in the Jewish world. I truly think our story, you know, the mutual story, uh, the story we built, it's the most fascinating scoop ever. I, I can't recall, you know, I think about the world's history, a small nation, you know, uh, exile coming back here. Then again, the Holocaust, rebuilding the state of Israel, building world uh, uh, Jewry. I think it's the most interesting thing that ever happened. And I'm privileged to cover it, to, to, to expose, to show the tiny stories that, you know, altogether they create that scoop. But one interview, I think um, every time I meet like... Um, families of terror victims, uh, I, I, you touch, you, you feel you touch destiny. You know, I think maybe I, I interviewed Natan Sharansky a few years ago, before we went on Shlichut to the States, I interviewed Natan Sharansky and he said something um, very meaningful. I sh shared it with Jews abroad, so maybe I'll, I'll share it here too. Natan Sharansky is, uh, maybe you should have him here on, on your podcast for him waking up at four, you know, it's nothing after um, <laughs> spending 12 and a half years in, in Russian jail. Yeah, with KGB investigations. So yeah, that's easy. So Natan Sharansky is a real hero. He was a Sirtzion. He was in jail because of his ideology, Zionism, Judaism, in um, communist uh, uh, Russia. And he said, before we went on Shlichut, he told me, you think what I describe is heroism, gvura. You know, I think uh, each individual Jew today is much braver than me. His bravery is, is greater. And I'm like, no, I'm not braver than you. I never spent one night in, in Russian jail. But he um, he explained that today the open world, liberal, democrat world, where everything is accessible and available, is, is much more tempting. When he was inside that small cell, everything was crystal clear, you know, right from wrong. And for him, it was very easy. You know, he was identified with everything that is positive. They were like ultimate evil, and it's very easy. And when he walked out, you know, from jail, he says, I became confused and I'm still confused because this world is confusing. And I took that message, you know, to all those unaffiliated Jews out there. Your, bra your bravery is greater. You're your heroes. You're, you know, coming to Boko Raton Synagogue on Shabbat morning. And I was there. I saw that uh, your beautiful community. That bravery. You can do whatever you want. Nobody forces you. There's no community today that tells you what to do. You can, you can really marry and eat and do and, and spend your time. It, everything's available. Now you should choose. And if you choose Judaism, that's real bravery. That's not me. I'm just quoting him. I think that message is the main message I took, you know, after 30 years of, of interviewing people. Yeah. Before, so, I, before so I hand it over to Rabbi Maskus, I just want to follow up with one other question. I'm sorry, Rabbi. And that is, and it applies to you, and, and, and people know that Yedidya, Sivan's husband, is also an accomplished journalist, an incredible talent in his own right. The two of you are, are doing something that's very unusual and borderline unique, and that is you're bridging different worlds within orthodoxy, and each of those worlds thinks of you as their own. So you're a shlicha of Mizrahi, unashamed, unapologetic Zionism, religious Zionism, yet Yedidya is a product of the Haredi world, and you became observant through a more Haredi orientation, from what I understand, even while you were on Shlichut in America and back in Israel, maybe even Haredi educational choices for children. And you're living in both worlds simultaneously to the degree that each world thinks of you as their own. In, in, in a time in which it's so polarized and everyone's fighting and defining themselves by what they're not, how are you able to do that? 
How are you able to, to give everyone that impression? And how can you encourage others? Because that's what we believe, that's what Boca Raton Synagogue is about, not getting caught in the differences and in the names and in the tags and the marginalizing of others, but to realize how much we have in common. You're doing it maybe better than anyone we know today. So share with us your secret. Wow. Okay. First of all, it's worth, you know, waking up so early, but, you know, so much <laughs> flattering words. Okay. Maybe it was worth it. <laughs> um, I hope it will help me during the day, you know, at 10 or 11. Okay. If you hear about a, a newscaster in Israel, fell asleep in the middle of reporting uh, the inauguration. Okay. It's your fault. Anyway, um, now what you just described, Baruch Hashem, I hope it's not like hypocrisy, you know, uh, you know, being uh, so nice to everyone. I hope it, it, it's, it represents us um in a way it's not my fault you you know decided to you the, the orthodox dream decided to divide you know to um um to to live in so many sectors that are so divided i mean the fact i'm zionist i see is it's it's something natural and healthy you know i'm seventh generation israeli Hashem, native israel you you hear the accent uh my ancestors came here during the first aliyah uh they they, they were real pioneers who founded the city of rishon Lezion. I can't ignore uh, what this revolution did, Bo Hashem. Um, I love the Haredi world. I appreciate uh, um, the, the Litvak both and Hasidic world. I, I, I'm really connected to Chabad movement, to the Dubavitcher Rebbe, and obviously religious Zionism. I feel at home there. And yeah, I also feel at home with my parents, my brother. I grew, I grew up in Herzliya, Ramat Sharon, secular places in Israel. And um, I'm in touch with them. I love them. It's, it's my family. In a way, I think maybe that's the natural situation. When we received the Torah, you know, nobody said at Har Sinai, okay, you're modern, you're you're to the right, you're to the left, you're Hasidish, you're Yeshivish, you're now maybe it's like childish, it's a childish way to describe things, but I think we need that concept. And maybe, you know what I discovered during our year in the States? Maybe we need your format. I mean your formula of American Haredish, I don't know. I, are you Haredi? No. Are you um Akiva? No. Are you a, it's something different, and we discovered it in, in many communities. And um, maybe when you're a minority, you have that ability of, you know, living in, in many worlds. And, um, yeah, maybe I don't give a, you know, a very, um, an, uh, like, the answer is not so, I don't have an, a formula here. Uh, I do think it's important to create those bridges, especially here in Israel, between the Haredi and Zionist uh, world. I think they can help each other. Uh, each sector can help the other with its its problems. I think they can solve each other's problems in a way. So, um, yeah, I, I maybe once again, because I became religious, maybe it's our, maybe it's our mission, you know, because in the past, when you became religious, when you became Baal Tshuva, you were, were, became very extreme, okay? And uh, maybe today, you should create something else, maybe. So, so I want to follow up on actually both of those comments, both your notion of shlichut, that you came to America, you spent a considerable amount of time here, and really the diversity of what you just described. Um, coming from Israel to America, you had a unique perspective on American society, on American culture, on American communities. You really, you really crisscrossed <laughs> um, America, visiting a number of different communities, very diverse group of communities. I'm curious your impressions on American Jewry, right? We sit in the bowl. We're in the in the forest right now, in the trees. I'm curious from your perspective, someone who kind of plopped themselves into America for a number of months, was able to see the width and breadth of American Jewry. What are some things you saw that surprised you? 
what are some of the opportunities that you didn't really recognize previously? What are some of the challenges? Um, give us a little bit of insight as an outsider into American Jewish culture. Wow. Um, first of all, yeah, we really spent, you know, an incredible, almost a year. We, we visited, you know, we covered the elections here in Israel. I was like, oh, yeah, Maryland, that no, and Florida, and California, yeah, Georgia, yeah, Memphis, Texas. I, I, I know those places now. I was there, Washington, yeah, Boston, everywhere, Baruch Hashem. So, uh, yeah, it was quite uh, quite an experience. We, we I think I, I I flew twice, twice, or even three times a week, you know, Shabbatonim, like a scholar in residence in so many places. And then during the week, uh, you can fly to Chicago in the morning and then go back home. It was like really crazy period. Now we spent, uh, yeah, uh, time at home finally. But um, I want to start maybe by flattering you, but then I want to tell you the truth, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll start. <laughs> no, we, we discovered a beautiful, um, I would say, world of Judaism. And the Israelis, they know nothing about you, what you built. We're very proud of what we built here for 72 years, Bo Hashem. But we never heard about, you know, you built a world of yeshivot and chesed and chinuch. And, you know, you built a strong, I would say, it's a lot of strength, a lot of, I would say, Jewish identity. Empires, empires, the camps, gap years, OU, YU, NCSY. Everything's like, um, you know, um, it's, it's, you have your way. You have your, I would say, bubble. And it's a beautiful bubble, and we loved it. I mean, the minute we, we lived in five towns and we spent times with, with, with communities like you, you know, strong and, um, I would say, uh, developed communities. But whenever I looked, you know, outside of that bubble, uh, and that's the main problem, I think, uh, the majority of the Jews are not there. And you can spend your whole life in that truant, <laughs> you know, and... Um, even discussing the, the differences between the sectors inside, you know, modern orthodoxy. And you forget, I think 90% of the Jews are not there. They're not with you. They walk away. And um, in a way, I, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't agree, you know. I, I, I met so many Israelis uh, uh, there, American Israelis, more than one million. Okay, I think they all live in Florida, but more than, <laughs> <laughs> I met them all at your, no, but seriously, they are, they live in America. They can't become members in most of the shuls. I know you have your own like Israeli minion and you have Israeli families. I met them, but uh, they don't feel at home when they, whenever they go to a Jewish school, they don't pay, you know, Jewish education, tuition, if you want to discuss other problems. So they, they don't belong, but uh, they, and they assimilate and that's a disaster. You know, their Israeli identity is, is fragile. It's not strong enough without, you know, Jewish ingredients. Uh, and, um, so I started working on many projects and that pandemic ruined that too. We start, we try to do more from here, you know, but um, uh, I think that's the main problem. If each individual in the States affiliated, each affiliated Jew belongs to a certain community, would pick one unaffiliated Jew and they're the biggest stream today and just, you know, draw them in, okay? You can really change um, uh, our, our future. I love it. Wow. I had a question, and I think it's kind of piggybacking on that. But from the other perspective, it was when you came to America and you said, I'm taking a year off of my life and I'm, my husband, we're going to go to America. What did you hope to achieve? And did it actually work out? Wow. It was quite an adventure. I mean, we just felt um, that before we came, I spent like each month, I came at least once to certain communities and we were 
really all over the place. And it became like a routine. So Mizrahi movement, they said, World Mizrahi movement led by Rev. Duran Peretz. I remember Rev. Duran said, why won't you just live there and do something meaningful each time you fly and you come back. And after two days, it's like, I, we feel there's a need. And, and we, felt, we felt that too. So we just, it's a crazy project, you know, taking five kids, bureaucracy, documents, everything that um, has to do with you moving your family to New York, changing everything, visas, health insurance, everything, you know, you know what it takes, or maybe you don't because you <laughs> were born there. But um, for us, it was quite a project and, you know, understanding the nuances, sending kids to, Jew to, to new Jewish schools. And it was like making Aliyah, but the other direction, the different direction. And now I understand Oli much more, you know, I know how it feels to be the stupid mother but you're not stupid. You're just an hola, you know. You, you. So I, you know, and the, I remember the um, text text messages. You know, for me, it was like a code. You know, uh, GM, PM, TM, TY. I was like, what? In Israeli high school, we say good morning, thank you, PM, thank you very much. I like. I was was like. Um, so I remember the first time I understood what they wrote. It was like, wow, yeah, I'm. I'm, uh, I became local, but it's not just the nuances. We thought of doing something meaningful. I felt we did something meaningful, but uh, you know, it was uh, it stopped uh, quite in the middle because we planned to come for two years, and Bo Hashem, everything was planned and booked, you know, for the second year. But uh, things changed. We wanted, you know, you you don't plan something like this beforehand. You want to discover. You want to come journey. I don't know. We we came to see and learn. I think we learn a lot, and we speak about you all the time here, you know, and, and vice versa. So yeah, becoming, as you said, maybe becoming a bridge uh, here too. You know, we have more uh, shawarma per capita in South Florida than anywhere in the world, I think, including Israel. <laughs> so we definitely have our share of Israelis. If I could ask you a little bit of a personal question, not that they haven't all been personal questions, but if there's any time, it's at 4.30 in the morning that I might get uh, <laughs> a chance to ask it. So so Sivan, you're, you're clearly an enormously ambitious woman. From a young age, you were precocious. You, you know, you told the story more fully when you were in our shul for Shabbos about passing notes in the class and the teacher, you were interviewing essentially all the other classmates in your class till the teacher became jealous and then you interviewed well, her. I remember you, everything, wow. I remember that story. It's an amazing story. And you climbed that ladder till you've become a premier journalist in, in Israel. It's, it's really amazing that you're, that you're on our show, a premier journalist across the whole state of Israel. So as I said, you're, you're clearly you know, ambitious and you have great goals and you go achieve them. And you've done it not only professionally, you're doing it in teaching Torah as well, not only on WhatsApp, but also the shiurim that you give and the weekly Torah lessons. And as I said earlier, the, the people who attend, like the President Rivlin and others, it's amazing. How do you balance that as a religious woman? How do you as a woman feel ambitious and the sky's the limit what you can achieve and yet embrace Judaism's attitude approach towards modesty in general, particularly the role for a woman? How do you find that balance of knowing where you can push and where your role with your, your beautiful family, your amazing five children? You know, what would be a message to, to Jewish women, young women, all women about what you can do and yet remain within the framework of, of Torah? Wow. Um... That's a good question. You know, I'm, uh, no problem. You can ask whatever you want. But once again, I don't think I have the formula. I don't like it when people ask me, okay, what's the secret? No secrets. I live my life, Bo Hashem. I try to ask. We have our Rabbanim of our family. I have, you know, whenever I have like a serious question, I always think of, you know, what would the Lubavitcher Rebbe say? I mean, what would, what would he do in, in order of shlichut and balancing family and career and what you do inside? He would always say that's your shlichut, you know. Your family, your house, the education of your kids, 
Maybe that's the first lichud before you educate the whole world. By the way, that year, maybe that's the answer for you. That year really taught me something, the lesson, the message. Because for me, yeah, before COVID-19, shlichut was standing before how many Jews listen to you every Shabbat morning? Uh, almost 1,000. When we were there in the middle of a winter break, uh, I, I hope you don't miss it too much because I think no things are different now. But yeah, standing in front of those Jews, speaking to them, going to an event with you know event with Hillel or Chabad, speaking to unaffiliated students about Israel and Torah. That was my shlichut. Flying to Boston, flying to Chicago, every Maryland, everywhere. But now my shlichut this year, my shlichut is here between the kitchen and the living room, and the audience, you know, the masses. Their names are Aharon, Tamar, Netanel, Hillel, and Yehudit. Sometimes my husband, Yadidia, I have six people. That's the crowd. That's the crowd. That's it. Five kids, one husband. That's it. That's the, and that's your shlichot. And they don't listen to me. No, uh, you know, um, standing ovations. No, you should, you should cook and clean and make them learn, you know, distant learning. Five kids here. It's a school, basically. The school is closed now. It's good you called now because it's a school. This house, five kids, five different classrooms each day. There's, you know, lockdown now. And, um, what what this year taught me, and I think uh, where I, I don't want to conclude yet, you know, I don't know what Hashem plans are, but for me, that my shlichut inside, you know, the family inside the house is even bigger and more important and harder. It's much easy, easier speaking, you know, coming to one night in Manhattan and the other at, uh, I don't know, um, uh, Jersey. Boy, do I, I miss all those communities, but, you know, it's much easier. Impressing them with my stories about Israel, it's very nice. I, I, you know, it's important. It's much harder and much more important um, to be with your kids 24-7 now for almost a year. And, that, and, 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 and yeah, that's much harder. And maybe it, it taught me something, you know, so it's not balanced right now. Because last year, I was everywhere. This year, I'm in a way, we're all stuck here. So maybe, you know, balancing it afterwards will be quite a challenge like a like a reset of sorts how do you yeah. give us some insight as, as a journalist we don't get to speak to newscasters katie Couric has not yet joined behind the Duma, but you know but you never but you never know so you know sivan tell us how do you approach a story do you find the story are you assigned the story um what do you bring to the story are you bringing your own editorial and your own personal uh values or are you simply reporting on the story give us some insight into how a newscaster works yeah sure first of all don't underestimate behind the bima you know how many <laughs> Sure, the rating is great. You know, I, I'm on Israeli TV almost every day, but the first time people texted me from all over the world, people from New York and others, and new immigrants from Israel, Olim, they said, oh, yeah, you're Modi'in, oh, but Shemesh, you're on behind the Bima tonight. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, wait, wait till we're translated into uh, Ethiopian. It's gonna, <laughs> we're going to get a whole new audience here. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah, the approach, <laughs> um, let's think about it. Um, in a way, I think today, um, people are not so interested about, you know, the information, they don't need, need me for the data, for the, the, the facts, okay? They have it. They get put, push notifications. Before I even, you know, I quote it, they know it. Um, the information is free. It's out there. You all know everything, okay? In the past, by the way, you needed me. I covered the Supreme Court. I covered the Knesset, our parliament. I was chasing, you know, after politicians and I, to, brought the inf to bring the information. That's not the system anymore. You have it. You know, you're just here, you have it all. Um, so what you do need, I think um, we should rethink about what do you want when you, wh why should you pay a journalist, okay, if you know everything. So you need us for, I think, context, broader context. 
um, maybe connecting past, present, and future, bringing something more meaningful. If I want to listen to, I don't need their um, the, the facts anymore. I want their agenda. I want their ideology, the narrative, the way they see the story. That's the only reason to follow them, to listen to them, to see to what. I mean, so today I think you cannot be an objective journalist anymore since, I mean, because you will just be boring. We, we needed that in the past. Thank you. Now, unless it's like a very, you know, a scoop, something you, you discover, you reveal, unless it's new information, like uh, something you researched, um, we, we want your, uh, your opinion. Uh, so uh, that's that's what I try to do. Yeah, I, I share my agenda everywhere, and th I think that's the only reason to to follow me today. Can Can you tell us what story you're working on right now? Break it here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, we. Uh, okay. No, I can't. No, the real the real <laughs> answer. No, I can't. Yeah, yeah you can. Are listening now from Israel behind the beam? No, I can't no give problem. you the real you answer. But we Who's always win the Israel you know what? You election. Gotta, no, it's like you got to <laughs> just just play that breaking news things she'll, exactly. she'll feel compelled yeah. to say something no but let me ask you a question because right you you're you're a masterful interviewer right what goes into an interview take us behind the preparation the number of questions what are you looking for what are you looking to get out of an interview do you get nervous for an interview do you ever get worried that you're going to come to a point in an interview and there's going to be an awkward silence what goes on behind the scenes before you interview someone like shimon perez or natan sharansky or someone very popular that you know is going to be watched very widely. I, I, by, the way, by the way, I also interviewed Sarah Netanyahu, uh, our first lady, or some say she's our prime minister. So yeah, Bo Hashem, I interviewed many, many of them. I think maximum preparations, I mean, you should prepare in order to achieve maximum, I would say, being, being spontaneous. If you prepare many questions, you can really feel free. I mean, you should read, Google, search, ask other people's, you know, to, to, for their tips and, 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 and ideas about what should I, I, I'm not ashamed. You know, I text my colleagues every day. This minister comes to the studio. What, what do you think I should ask? I ask, ask him. I do it all the time. I mean, I ask people all the time for their, um, their tips, but, um, in a way I think, and maybe, um, uh, uh, people will say it's a mistake. A transparency helps. If I, and I ima imagine a few days ago, uh, one of the supreme ministers here in Israel uh, came uh, uh, to, to my show, and I told him beforehand what are the the topics, what are the the main questions. Now, maybe one will say well, she's crazy. You're supposed to surprise him. I believe in a way, if he prepares good, I told him, but prepare good answers because I want you to I, I want you to give me you know um, in Hebrew we call it tenli basar, give me something like a meal, like a like a. I want uh, something, you know, uh, in in response. Don't just say, "Oh, I don't know." I'll think about it. Give me something. I want you to to um, uh, uh, to treat that, you know, to to answer that issue. I want I want your opinion on that. And it helped. I mean, it it was much. I think it was one of the best interviews he gave. Just because because I I helped him to help himself and help me. You know, maybe people will say, "Oh, she's crazy. Why do you uh, keep it?" You know, and 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 surprise him. I want the content, okay? I don't just I don't just want the, the surprise. Um, I also love to to ask them about personal you know, their personal life. Whenever someone comes, I ask them, you know, uh, during the lockdown, how many kids do you have? What do they do? Uh, what about distance, distance learning? Uh, does it work? Uh, how do you manage? You know, or your husband, your wife, do you are you do you do it together now? You know, personal questions about COVID nineteen, not just policy and not just you know political questions. Tell me what your life. These these things are the fascinating, the most fascinating things at the end of the day. 
What's it like as a public personality? Are you stopped often when you're out in public in Israel? Everybody recognizes you. You're on TV almost every day. How do you maintain a privacy? You're not always in the mood at a restaurant to leave your family. I'll tell a story. I'll actually tell you a story about that, which is that last year, right before you came, we hosted a unit of Israeli soldiers, this amazing program called Peace of Mind. And at one point, you sent me a WhatsApp message. The guys were on my phone. These like 20 army guys. They're on my phone. And and a message from you popped up. And you should have... Sivan is texting like it was it was they couldn't <laughs> believe it they said can we send her a message back you were, I mean it was like a rock star I couldn't and that wow. was really the first exposure that I had and I was like yeah we've been texting back and forth for a month <laughs> they couldn't but blew their mind away so yeah you're noticed <laughs> okay yeah th- thank you by the way for arranging that Shabbat okay one of the last Shabbat thoughts we had before uh, this thing started yeah but um I think one of the advantages maybe when we lived in five towns Nobody knew who we are. That was very, you know, no selfies for a month. It was like, wow, why the diet, you know, no selfies. <laughs> yeah, I like it. And I I grew up uh, that way, you know, from the age of six or seven, people recognize me, they know who I am, and they follow for 30 years, you know, the changes, the kids, everything. They, they. It's not like I became um, a superstar, you know, overnight. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. You know, those peaks, it's, it's dangerous. But for me, it's like, that's the way I live. And the kids, they, they, you know, they're familiar with it. And uh, I like it. I don't run away. When, whenever I see, like, you know, icons, like celeb- celebrities, when they run away, people, you know, ran, chased after. And it's, it becomes like an, a scene. You just stand and say, yeah, why not? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's smile. Let's hug each other. Now it's not allowed. But, uh, um, and uh, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. So it's not like it doesn't become too dramatic. Yeah. I, I love meeting people. Sometimes I listen to their stories and that becomes, you know, the next post, the next story I, I cover. I, I'm, and I'm not like, you know, um, I think because it's Hashem, it's almost like a generation for 30 years. So it's quite average. It's not like I won, I don't know, some contest, a reality show yesterday and now I'm a superstar and the next day it's very, it's, it's part of our life. And we, yeah, we like it. Uh, we like it. The kids even, I think even the kids like it when people stop you and, and ask you questions. It's always funny and interesting. And why not? If you can if you can do in, in, in five minutes such a mitzvah, people are happy just uh, to record, you know, your bracha for someone's bar mitzvah on the street. Uh, why not? It's the easiest mitzvah. Yeah, great. We've been, we've, we've been talking all about your successes, and it has been from our perspective. You know, if all you do is Google your name and all that comes up are websites that list the awards and the accomplishments and the achievements. Has there been any area that you failed? Have you ever struggled? And how did you overcome it? What did you learn from it? Wow, many, many failures, yeah. Uh, first of all, yeah, when you Google my name, you don't see last last year, that year of, you know, the dream that stopped in the middle, our shlichut, coming back to Israel, many tears, many fights. You know, at the beginning, we thought, uh, okay, it's temporary. We'll just rent a place in Israel and we'll come back. America's waiting. Okay, yeah, we're all dealing with that crisis as then we, we couldn't come back. And it, and we moved, um, we lived in four different places since that pandemic started because we moved and we rented something temporary. And then we, oh Hashem, now we're here in Yerushalayim. But in a way, it was quite, yeah, quite a crisis uh, for us. It wasn't so easy. And the kids, you know, they left America, their American schools in the middle of the year. They, by the way, if you can help us out, their books, you know, are still there in, in lockers, locked inside lockers <laughs> in Rockaway. I don't know what's going on with, with the, their books and, you know, all the, the, the equipment. Everything stopped, you know, and um, we moved in the middle of the night. We, we just took, we never said goodbye. For us, it was quite, a, uh, quite shocking. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not perfect. It wasn't the, 
best year. And um, that's just one example. Um, I, I can't cook. It's, it's very, my, my daughter Tamar, she's 14 now, she started working, you know, and she's very successful in, in the kitchen. It's awful whenever I, the kids are like, no, no, mommy, mommy don't, don't even try. Don't even try. <laughs> so yeah, all I can do is like make an omelet or something. So yeah, m- many fields uh, I drive. Wow. Uh, I can't park in reverse and something. My husband says I can't even drive forward. I mean, it's not so <laughs> successful, not the best. No, many, many fields, many things I should improve when it comes to praying, you know, davening with Kavana, when it comes to learning more seriously. During this year, I always feel I learn like nothing is stable. And um, yeah, many, many problems. Yeah, I can add many more to the list. Last question, because we, we've kept you. It's the middle of your night. Again, from the bottom of my heart, our hearts were so grateful. Last question for you. So we were talking before you came on. There's a big lottery in America right now. I know they have in Israel also the lottery. Um, so it's at record numbers. There are two lotteries. There's the Mega Millions and Powerball, two separate tickets. And each of them at this point are close to a billion dollars each. I mean, combined, it's almost, you know, one and three quarter billion dollars. Rabbi Brody bought tickets to each. He's convinced he's going to win. He already announced a pledge to our local federation. He has yet to announce what he's given to Booker Tone Synagogue. But we'll take care of that after you leave. My question for you, the last question for you, Sivan. If you won a billion dollars, if you won a billion dollars, what would you do with it? How would you change the world? Oh, uh, would first you, of all, would you quit your, jo- would you quit your job? It's in America, first of all. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that would use up most of it. I should thank them for the discount. Yeah, I can. Now we can send my kids. No, no, but seriously. Uh, wow. I think for the first time I would do, no, I, I love what I do. We asked it many times, you know, the kids asked us, mommy, if we'll become millionaires, will we change something? Um, I think most of the things, maybe one show and one project, maybe I do it for, for Panasa and it's okay, it's allowed. But most of the things, I love it. By the way, the, the project, the Daily WhatsApp project, it's, I, I, we're all volunteers. Nobody, there's no money involved here. I do it, I work for Zuckerberg for, for free. We all, by the way, we all work for free for Zuckerberg. That was, uh, but um, uh, in a way, maybe it's the first time I, I could open my own project because I always worked for, I always worked for, for others, you know, great places, movements, organizations. But I think um, Jewish education and especially Jewish education for Israelis abroad, that's like my dream now. I understand that's the uh, urgent mission. Wow. Uh, uh, Jewish Israeli kids in Canada and the States. I met, I saw the families. They recognized me. They came, you know, on one, one family, they came, they drove to the shul in, in Philly, Philadelphia. They came. Shabbat morning with the, the keys, you know, the car keys. They came into the shul, it was 11. I, st- I, I was a scholar resident. I, I finished my drasha, my shiur. And they, they, I remember the way they rushed into the hall and said, Wow, Sivan Rav Meir, Ipo. And I was like, yeah, I'm here. Oh, we heard you're here. Someone texted us and we came. They dro- I told them, okay, do you know that? Com- no, we, we didn't even know there's a shul here. The community never, never. So I invited them. I said, okay, please stay and be with us during that Shabbat. They lived like I don't know. Uh, uh, they drove, but they, they they were there. They were part of that the the area. And um, the way they came, you know, in the middle of that uh, Shabbat was so sad in a way. And I looked at them. I said, what, "What's going on here? They know nothing about this community and this show. This show, they don't care about them. They don't. Do they see themselves as one nation? Do they see this? Uh, if if they have a problem, I mean, what, what's going on here? And yeah, I think maybe it sounds um like um. We have problems in Israel too, but after spending almost one year in America, I believe more Jewish education, you know, and, and that it's, it's like there, it's a mutual treasure and giving that opportunity for free or in, in a very low, cheaper way 
to more Jewish kids. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to spend $1 billion. Yes. Yeah. So I'll tell you this. In honor of your waking up so early in the morning and joining us, if Rabbi Brody wins, he's pledging $30 million to help you start a new program to help Israelis abroad with Jewish education. Rabbi Brody, $30 million? $100 million. $100 million. $100 yeah. million. Yeah, I'm matching. You're Rabbi, 200 Rabbi, million in. I'm already 200 spent. But you know what? I, I was listening to what you said, and I couldn't agree more. I think it's so. I'm up to 150 million actually. We're throwing in 150. <laughs> 150. I agree with you. How will we call it? The Brody. No, uh, no, no, no. We're going to. Uh, anonymous. 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 If you know Rabbi Brody. <laughs> it's not going to be anonymous, but it's also not going to be not anonymous. <laughs> Okay. It's amazing. Okay. It's amazing. Now, my brother doesn't realize that when you win, there's after tax and after, you know, the payout. So he's already giving away more than he's going to take home. But you heard it here, Sivan, from the bottom of our hearts. <laughs> Thank you so much. Remember that promise. I bless you from Yerushalayim, from Yerushalayim, American Lottery, Simone's going to cut off your microphone soon, Rabbi Brody. And uh, Mrs. Waldman, my math teacher from JC, is listening. She's like, those numbers don't add up. <laughs> she knows. Didn't I teach you she how knows. to do math? <laughs> Sivan, please send our, our warmest regards to your amazing husband and to your beautiful family. And we wish you only bracha v'atzlacha. We should merit to have you back in America teaching and inspiring and uh, on shlichut. And we thank you for all that you do. And thank you most of all for, for joining us tonight. Thank you. Toda rabba Mirushalayim. Laila tov, boker tov. Okay, good night and good, good morning. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Amazing. Wow. One of a kind. She's a real powerhouse. And, uh, what energy. An it's contagious yeah. energy. Such a powerhouse. I hope she either drinks a big cup of coffee or goes back to sleep because that right. was so kind of her to join us. Yeah, like, bro, you better crunch some numbers over there and figure out. No, I want you to know I have a whole list already. I trust me. Everyone's you're the only get person. You're the you're the only person who could win a billion dollar lottery. I need the community to support you. You might be the only person. <laughs> I, I might. I might need it. There's <laughs> a good chance really it might, might happen. Be the only person. I have no problem with it's that. It's really, really amazing. Oh, so I like how she said. About. I, I like when she said and when she meets with special people and she's like, "Tainli at basar." You know, give me the. Give me the meat. I can see meat, you being like, Tainly at a shawarma with the lafa. <laughs> Give me the whole. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's so much you know? more to talk about. I'd, I'd love her insights on the Israeli election. I'd love her insights on how to bridge the gap between the, the uh, religious and the secular in Israel. It's so, uh, you know, we, we won't wake her up again in the middle of the night, but we'll have to bring her back sometime soon to keep talking. So um, this week is 70 years since the Rebbe. Zatzal, Aleinu, 70 years since the Lubavitcher Rebbe ascended to his position as Rebbe. We could have spoken to Sivan about this too. She spoke about the uh, significance of the Rebbe in her life, his influence in her life. Um, what's amazing, if you've read the biographies of the Rebbe, you'll know that he actually resisted, like Moshe Rabbeinu before him. He said no. He didn't want to be the Rebbe. It took a full year from his father-in-law's passing until he became the next Rebbe. And look how much richer the Jewish world is because he did. Now Jews can go anywhere in the world, all 50 United States, but really anywhere in the world, and there's a warm Chabad house to welcome you, a minion kosher food, a mikvah, tefillin, the campaigns that he ran, transforming the Jewish world. You talk about shlichut or shlichus, um, the Rebbe's contribution. So 70 years since he ascended to that position, and, and look at the army that he's left behind. Well, we've discussed that in the past. Is there anyone, certainly 20th century Jewry, but you could even, I could argue going back, is there anyone in the last 100, 200 years who has transformed worldwide Jewry? more than the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Change the face of how people approach Judaism, feel connected to Judaism, the projects, the width and breadth of the, 
of, of what they're able to accomplish across the globe. Um, it's hard to argue that Lubavitch Rebbe is at the top of that list. And again, whether you associate with Chabad, whether you're a general like Rabbi Goldberg, I think all of us have been touched by by his leadership and by um, the impact that he had over the last 70 years. Yeah, no, you know, the, you have the people who are like, I'm not a Chabadnik until they go on vacation or have a business trip. God forbid they're saying Kaddish or they want kosher food. All of a sudden, everybody is a beneficiary of the vision of the Rebbe. But that's only one way. I mean, he was he was the leader. Well, when, when did you first connect with, you're not, you didn't grow up Chabad. When did you first connect with the, the Rebbe, the Rebbe's mission, the vision, um, when did that, cause, cause I know it's very much a part of you now. When did that, when did that change? I definitely have to credit Boca for it. But when I did yeah. grow up in Teaneck, there was a Chabad of Teaneck and my parents had a dear friend, Bruno Beeler of blessed memory, a dear friend to my parents and to me. Um, and he was very involved in the local Chabad, which, you know, in, at the time in Teaneck, I don't know, it was, it was doing outreach as much as Jewish enrichment and education. That's when I first became a private in Sivos Hashem before my promotion to general most recently, as you know, on, on Behind the Bima. Uh, so that was my first exposure to it. Um, but really, it's here in Boca, our relationship with our local Chabad rabbis. Absolutely. And, and they're, they're not just people that we work with. And we have colleagues in other communities where there's some tension, there's some conflict. For us, not only is there no tension or conflict, there's not only cooperation, there's genuine friendship. Genuine Real friendship, going to one another's and mutual respect, confiding, mutual respect. Yeah, enormous mutual respect, and we've we've collaborated, we've confided, we've worked together. There's a friendship. We've been there for one another. You know, this week is an example. Thursday night, Benny Friedman concert, now of the seventieth anniversary of the Rebbe ascending to that position, interspersed with messages about the Rebbe that our local Chabad rabbis are going to be sharing, and whether it's Yutes Kislev Fabrengen or Thomas Fabrengen or the different Fabrengen that we do, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, but the biggest Chabad Fabrengen right now in Boca Raton and maybe Palm Beach County and beyond happened at Boca Raton Synagogue because we're all Chabad. So there's so much I identify with about his positive messaging and his concentration on, on words, his sensitivity and care to the greater Jewish community and to bringing values to the whole world, the notion of, of shlichus. I mean, it's just, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary what he did. You know, it's interesting because I didn't grow up with really an awareness of Chabad. In Boston, it wasn't as much of a presence um, when I was growing up. But for me, it became much more of an influence when I got to YU. And I started going to the Rebbe Zohel on oh, Thursday night. You started going to Delhi Kazba and you had to say, no, no, no. first of all, you had our Torah there for the free <laughs> dessert. But uh, no, I wanted to, uh, you know, to the Rebbe Zohel in the middle of the night. There's no greater place for introspection and davening mm. for me. And that became a regular mainstay of my experience at YU. Um, and it was really through that that I started getting more familiar with Chabad and uh, who the Rebbe was. And then obviously once the biography started coming out, that's, that's when I became much more aware of, uh, of what he, you know, his mission, his vision. And, and of course, as you said, our Stiebelman in here at BRS, where uh, they remind me every week that I might look like a Litvak on the outside, but in my inside, my kishkas, I'm a Chabadnik. Yeah, the old is a special place. You and I had the great privilege of going there with Rav Moshe Weinberger at Shlita and to have him speak to us, a small group of Rabbanim, and to daven at the old with him was a really, really extraordinary experience. And it's a very it's a very special place, the old. Uh, Best cookies. Cookies, seltzer, that, that machine where you can get like whatever drink you want out of it. It's amazing. And the teas, the cookie and the tea on a cold night the and the with the heater on, over your head. It's it's especially all the Rebbe, yeah. I took my daughter there before her wedding, and then my second daughter, I took her, her chassan to the all the Rebbe before, and we, we go to, there's a lot of worthwhile graves to daven at, but there's something special. It's, it's at the all of the Rebbe that you'll see the totality of the Jewish people, and you'll see non-Jews. Right. You'll see everybody Everyone. comes there. 
Um, so that's really a, a microcosm, a representative of who he was and, and the difference that he made. So that'll be a, a date that we mark this week, an important date that we are, uh, that we are marking. Um, let's close. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question. Rabbi Brody, you had something? No, I was going to say one of the one of the projects that I had, it didn't work out yet. I still haven't given up is trying to find a, f- a photo of my father visiting the Rebbe for the dollars. You know, you get these dollars on, on a Sunday, I guess. And I went through probably, probably at least 100,000 photos online. I haven't seen, and that was only since like, like maybe 1988, 89 through 93, I think it was when he might have passed away. But mm-hmm. but But you look at the types of people that went during that short period of time to go visit him. And you look at the... It will blow you away for heads of state, presidents from from many different Everybody. countries, and they're he's not going to visit them. They're coming and visit, and they probably had to wait in some sort of line. I'm, I'm telling you, it's right. crazy. It's amazing. Right. It's inspiring. Yeah, it is amazing. And in fact, you it's know? a reminder to thank our sponsor again, Stories to Inspire. Check out storiestoinspire.org, 2000 Stories. Follow them on WhatsApp broadcast, email list, Instagram. I think if I have a story on there, I think it's the story I told about one of our members, one of my neighbors who received a dollar from the Rebbe and gave it away, used it to buy something as her act of rebellion right. against the Rebbe, Chabad, right. Judaism, Torah. And more than a decade later, she was working in a store and came that back. dollar that had her name on it came right back to her. And that was a- uh, How do you explain that? Amazing. That's a yeah, crazy response every time. Response every time. It's an amazing story. I'm gonna write it. I'm gonna write write a note on a dollar bill. See where it ends up one day. Maybe I'll come back. <laughs> yeah. Come back to Phil. <laughs> yeah, you know. So I I think Rav Schechter told me you you would not have likely seen. It. I, I interviewed Rav Schechter, and um, he spoke about his time that he went and got a bracha from the Babich Rebbe and gave him an article he had written. The Babich Rebbe re- remembered it, but he told me another amazing story, and and you wouldn't have. You know, thought Rav Schechter would tell about Rebbe stories. He told me it's not in that interview, but off camera, he told me a couple of other stories. And in one of which, listen to this story: somebody went to the Rebbe for a bracha to get married, and the Rebbe said bekarov etzlacha, you know, bekarov soon, soon. And it took him like two or three more years to get married, and he was always bothered that he got this bracha from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe is the great Rebbe, the prescient, prophetic Rebbe. He gave him this bracha, and yet it took a while. Why didn't it happen sooner? And you know, these video archives are now coming out about people going to the Rebbe. They're indexing them. People are looking for themselves. And the person found the video of when they went to go get the bracha from the Rebbe, and behind him in line was the woman he ultimately married. No way. (laughs) And when the Rebbe said, Bekarov, close to you, he didn't mean close to you in time. He meant, you know, turn around, bozo. She's right there. She's right behind you. She's right behind you. She's right behind you. And there are other really amazing, amazing stories like that. We are out of time, even though there was more to talk about. I want to talk about the letter to the successor. What would you stick in the drawer of your successor? What would you write him a letter? Because while President Trump didn't attend the inauguration of President Biden, he did leave him a letter, which has become a new custom. And the one question that President Biden answered earlier in the day in a press conference or while walking out was about the letter. And he said it was a very generous and gracious letter. He doesn't have the permission to to share what's in it, but it was a very generous letter. So um, what would you leave? What would you leave to your successor, whether it's in your job or in some ways successors in life, your values, what's important, what's the message you'd want to get across? I'll let you think about it. That's your homework for next time. Mm-hmm. But I want to thank uh, Sivan Rahav Mayer for joining us this evening in the middle of the night. Special thank you to our sponsor, StoriesToInspire.org. Check it out. Huge thank you to our new good friend, Ishai Ribo. Go listen to his music. It will open your heart and your soul and listen to his message about what a special place Boker Town Synagogue is. What another great show. Thank you, Rabbi Brody, Rabbi Moskowitz. No one I'd rather spend Wednesday nights at 9 o'clock with. <laughs> to those coming for Yeshiva Week or going away. Be careful, stay safe, stay healthy. It's uh, still a pandemic going on. Got to distance, you got to wear masks. 
And uh, if you're coming from elsewhere, you can't. Are you going to publish your yearly article welcoming New Yorkers and uh, your advice for them while they're visiting our community? After gently suggesting something to New Yorkers Pesach time and <laughs> the threats that I received literally, and that's for Shul Sinek, literally threat to throw a brick through my window because New Yorkers were offended as if I and my family are not all from New York. Offended all, um, he offended the whole New York. Yeah, he offended the whole New York. <laughs> It's amazing. Their governor and mayor don't offend them, and I offended them from Boca Raton. That's not easy to pull off. Whatever. But anyway, so I think I will not be saying that message this year. We love everybody, and we just love everybody to be careful together. That's all. That is the message. Until next time, until next week, same time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy, our dear friends. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bima. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the beamer.